Hi there, this is Kim Rowdy at USH Med Student. And as you can tell, we're as ready as we're ever going to be. <laughs> Have to uh, start off uh, this uh, podcast, which is not brought to you by Diet Coke, but uh, Chad and Derek, you guys, uh, you guys got me. Um, <laughs> you want to tell the story? <laughs> I, I can't. Uh, those of you that have rotated with me know that I may drink Diet Coke on occasion, or maybe on occasion I don't have a Diet Coke in my hand. And uh, as I said, should we get started to do this? They both reached in there, uh, reached below the desk, pulled out a Diet Coke, threw it down, and opened it at the same time and said, we're ready. It was <laughs> classic. Uh, very, very, very well played and uh, a lot of fun. So uh, we've got a podcast today on EMDR. Uh, let's do some introductions to start off with. And I think you guys have introduced yourselves a little bit before. You're now at the uh, nearing the end of your first rotation in your third year. Uh, go ahead and introduce yourself and, and maybe give a quick comment on what other students who are doing rotations here might want to think about in their early rotations. All right. Um, so my name's Chad Talbot, as previously mentioned. Um, I'm a third year medical student at Rocky Vista, and this is midway through, I would say, our first rotation. So we're a lot more comfortable than we were last time, but I feel like we still have a lot of things to learn. Anki? Yeah. Okay. Yep. I like it. Derek? Yeah, I'm, I'm a Derek daughter. I'm also a third year student at Rocky Vista. Um, piece of advice I'd give for someone going for their first rotation here is be comfortable being on your own and be able to deal with patients on your own. That's something that, like like Chad said, we're, we're still in the beginning of our rotation, I'd say, but um, it's definitely developed over the last couple of weeks of being able to do that, and it's gotten a lot better. <laughs> and be comfortable in your own skin, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. so to speak. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so... Um, what we're going to try and do on this is have some high yield information at the beginning that will be shelf helpful regarding PTSD. From there we'll go to uh, the history of, of this treatment, EMDR, how it works according to the literature, um, maybe why it works, a little bit more questions there, and then we'll kind of end up tackling some of the meta-analysis and some questions that we generated. We're going to try something new, which is uh, to kind of throw out questions and just see where they go. It's uh, something we haven't done as much before, and the idea isn't to put the two of you on the spot or to um, try and uh, shame or embarrass or anything like that. It really is truly just to kind of generate a discussion. And I think the idea would be that these are the kinds of discussions that we have all the time on this rotation where maybe I throw out a question that I don't necessarily know the answer to and we have a, a chat about it or maybe as we did podcast prep, we'd throw out a question and it would lead to a discussion. So that's kind of the the, the idea, okay? Not, not a... Uh, permanent mark on your record kind of thing. <laughs> All right. So uh, let's start with the high yield stuff. Um, I think in any, in every rotation I have, the first thing I talk about is timelines. PTSD, which is what EMDR is primarily um, used to treat, what are the important timeline items for this condition? So the big thing with PTSD is to differentiate it from acute stress disorder. And one of the big distinguishers is the timeline. And so anywhere from um, a few days to a month is it going to be associated with the acute stress disorder. 
And then if you have the same symptoms and it's longer than a month, that's when you're going to be looking into PTSD. All right. So three days to a month, acute stress disorder. After that, PTSD. And there are no meaningful differences between the criteria other than the timeline. Not that I know sound like it. Okay. Generally speaking, if you've learned criteria for one, you've learned it for the other, and you just need to know timeline. Yep. All right. Uh, one of the challenges, I think, with any of the exams is to make sure that you're getting the right diagnosis. And I think one of the things that I've had a challenge with is understanding the difference between PTSD and maybe an adjustment disorder. So we, I think we spent some time looking at that before the podcast. So for me, PTSD is to have an event and then have reliving experiences. Now let me go into that just a little bit further. The event requires that you have a risk of death, that you're faced with that, that you have serious injury or risk of serious injury, if I read the criteria correctly, or that you are sexually assaulted, or have some sort of proximity to those maybe that leads you to believe that you would have had that, 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 that it felt like you were at risk for that, right? Then following that, you would have intrusive symptoms, a negative mood, not a depressed mood necessarily, but a negative mood, dissociative symptoms, avoidance symptoms, or arousal symptoms. And, and there are some uh, more specific kinds of criteria under there. I'd refer you to the PTSD podcast that we've done for that. So an A and a B criteria, and then of course at the end there's all the other criteria about hierarchy stuff where it fits in with other diagnoses. So to me, PTSD and acute stress disorder are that A and B disorder. How does that differ from an adjustment disorder? So yeah, this was where we were kind of struggling a bit. It's kind of mucky, the difference between them, but I think we kind of got it boiled down to the PTSD, as you said, is both of those A and B criteria, whereas adjustment disorder is just one of the two. So it can either be you have an exposure to a death, a near-death experience or serious injury or sexual assault, and but without the B criteria, it would just be something like a sad mood and not like a negative mood or um, a reliving experience or avoidance or any of those B criteria. Or the flip can be true where you have the B criteria, but the stressor isn't one of those A criteria that we mentioned. It's something like losing your job or moving, something like that. That's not the A criteria for PTSD. I like that. Anything you'd add to that, Chad? No, I think that was great. All right, so uh, timelines and the difference between adjustment disorder and PTSD. I like that a lot. Very cool. So how did you guys decide to do a podcast on EMDR? Do you want to start? Sure, yeah. Well, it was funny because we were kind of each researching our own stuff, trying to figure out like what we wanted to do. And uh, one day I was going through Anki and I... uh, came across a card, you know, it's the classic card of EMDRs related to PTSD. And I turned to chat, I'm like, hey, this would be fun. It's kind of like a different sort of therapy than the typical ones, like CBT and all those other stuff. And uh, yeah, and then Chad said, like, actually, I've looked into that myself and I've, because he... Yeah, so, I mean, you've encouraged some students to look into potential areas of interest in their future careers. And I have at this point, I don't know where I want to go in my career, but I have toyed with the idea of ophthalmology. 
Uh-huh. And so I thought, saw the eye part, and I'm like, ooh, that could be associated. Come to find out, it might not be as <laughs> applicable <laughs> as first thought, but that's how we got into it. Yeah. So Very interesting. Now, you've been really shy about saying ophthalmology. This is the first time I've heard you say that, yeah. and you, you well, like looked I'm, away in shame and were worried about <laughs> it. It's okay. I need a good ophthalmologist. <laughs> well, One of the students who I, I wrote down, uh, it, it wasn't Storm, it was uh, Parker, Jake. right? Parker, yes. Parker, I wrote his name down, put it in my wallet so I could remember to dislike him for a very long time <laughs> after he pointed out my aging presbyopia. Yeah. Yeah, so I need a, a good ophthalmologist. I'm cheering for you. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, I do have your cell number too. So. <laughs> Easy access. <laughs> uh, I think that would be appropriate, er, inappropriate as uh, an attending to have that kind of expectation afterwards. But uh, I can tell you I'd trust you to work on my eyes. So um, interesting topic. You came to it in part by accident, in part by studying the Anki deck, having some curiosity about it. I like that. When you started reading about it, I think there's sort of this uh, very recent history with the MDR. In many cases, some of the podcasts that we've looked at have gone back and talked about some of these really amazing um, biological discoveries that happened in the 40s and the 50s, centrifuging um, uh, ribosomes to find CYP450 enzymes, and if you flood them with this, then they you know re- re- emit light at the 450 spectrum, right? Really cool stuff. and. We don't have that history yet with the MDR. It's young. No. Give me the history. It's almost like the opposite of finding the mechanism and then coming up with a treatment based off of that. It's almost like, so the history behind it is a lady named Francine Shapiro in 1987, I believe. And, and we'll call yeah. her Dr. Shapiro, I think. Yes. All right. We'll refer to her as Dr. Shapiro. And she was walking in the park and she had some distressing memories and she noticed that as she moved her eyes back and forth that seemed to um, decrease the negative emotions associated with that distressing memory and so she developed this treatment based off of that experience. Now where did you find that story? Um, Was that in the one of the two articles the 1989 or 89 articles, right? Those were the first two? No, I couldn't get access to either of those, unfortunately, but it was just by Googling it. So Interesting. I, it's part yeah. of their website, the EMDR, that has the history of. Who who runs that website? Is that Dr. Shapiro's website, or is it a... Um, it could have been. I, I think she's passed now, but okay. um, I don't know who currently runs it. Okay, so, th- so there's a like an EMDR central website. Mm-hmm. I think we're going to come back to that in just a moment, sort of the proprietary nature of this. I'll, I'll ask yeah. about that in a moment. So so she's walking through the park. She notices that she's looking side to side. She notices it relieves some of the distress she feels. And that leads her to developing EMDR. And what happens next? Well, like Chad was saying, it was more of trying to figure out why it works mm-hmm. than the actual, like, how you typically think of treatments is you find out the mechanisms behind a, a disease and then you develop a treatment around that. It was more of she figured that these eye movements helped her with her negative mood and was developed the theory, developed the theory and the, the therapy. And then subsequent um, studies were just looking at how why this works because it, it seemed to really do work. 
My impression is she started off um, the 89 papers, I think, were randomized control trials. Mm-hmm. And I think also, so the, there's a Shapiro, I'm sorry, a Spectre paper I read, which was a 2007 paper. And Spectre made the case, I'm going to kind of bounce this off you. Spectre made the case that before 1998, it was largely case reports and a few randomized control trials to see if it worked. And then he said, by 1998, we knew it worked. And now what we're doing, instead of seeing if it worked, what we're doing is comparing it to the gold standard, which is uh, prolonged exposure. And do uh, you guys want to comment on what prolonged exposure is? So, <laughs> so we, I mean, we don't have as much experience in the prolonged exposure per se, but it's, according to our research, a part of the CBT-based tra- or trauma-based therapy. So it's a cognitive behavioral therapy treating uh, PTSD. Mm-hmm. I, and my understanding is that it involves picking exposures and exposing yourself to those either imaginally or or in real life, and then, if I understand correctly, how you respond to that is addressed, and, and mm-hmm. there's some expo- some response um, work that then helps people become accustomed to those intense um, emotions associated with that trauma, that reliving experience. Am I on the right track based on what you guys saw? Oh yeah, yeah, it's much more imagery than. I think imaginal exposure yeah. is, is quite often used. And, and this is the gold standard. And so Shapiro makes the case, well, now we've proven that it works. We're going to go ahead and start comparing it to everything else. And I think maybe even, um, and I want to hear your thoughts on this, it seems like maybe five or six years after Shapiro says there's two phases, maybe even a third phase opens up, which is something along the lines of maybe EMDR has value in treating depression and other uh, mental health states. Yeah, I, I came across some articles that were talking about that, but it seemed to not be as strongly um, proven that they work for stuff that's outside of the PTSD realm. Very early data. Yeah. Yeah. All right, so so we now have this therapy in the space of uh, 15 years or so. There are now a lot of articles about it, right? By the time Shapiro rolls around, there are actually a lot of articles that are out there and a lot of interest in it. And uh, Shapiro in his, or I'm sorry, Spectre, I keep saying Shapiro, Spectre, in the 2007 EMDR review, which I read, then went in to describe, on to describe what the EMDR process has become, right? So this is his version of what uh, Dr. Shapiro did to treat patients with PTSD using EMDR. You guys, I think, had a different article. We compared notes. It sounds like it's the exact same thing. Um, I think the reason it's very similar is something to do with the um, proprietary nature of EMDR. Do you guys, uh, did you guys read a little bit about that? I think you have to pay to go learn how to do it. It's uh, yeah. two or three thousand dollars. I think you sign agreements that you won't maybe teach other people how to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, that, and, and by the way, we've never been to an EMDR training, so we're not violating any contracts yeah. here. <laughs> um, and I think you also agree to to some stipulations so that the EMDR um, owners of the intellectual property, so to speak, have been able to to monetize the therapy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Does that sound about right too? Yeah, that sounds right, because a few of the articles that I looked into had to state their conflicts of interest, and many of those conflicts of interest were based off of those proprietary 
associations and whether or not they'd had textbooks or um, teaching manuals on how to perform this treatment. So, Gotcha. So, so I, I think that was one of the early criticisms. We'll come back to some of the other criticisms at the end and the surprise questions I've got for you, I think. <laughs> All right. Um, so we now, have, we now have a therapy, and this therapy is broken down into eight phases. Right. Yes. Tell me about phase one of EMDR. So that's basically just the history taking, kind of getting uh, it, uh, the the background of the patient, and um, more with that kind of developing developing rapport with the patient, and um, yeah, it's more trying to find the memories that really trigger their PTSD response. The only other thing that I found in there is uh, something along the lines of look for contraindications. Did you guys see contraindications for EMDR and what you read? This one mentioned uh, suicidality. Mm. And um, if somebody had maybe a, a TBI, I'm, I'm assuming this is a PTSD TBI picture, right? We saw a, a number of those coming out of, of uh, the wars of the last uh, 20 years or so. Um, that maybe impairment in motivation would be a contraindication. Did you guys come across either of those things in what you read? Not those no, specifically. I, yeah. I read an article about um, PTSD and psychosis and whether or not it would be um, something encouraged to, to try. Was the answer maybe? Well, it was comparing prolonged exposure and EMDR. So... It was an interesting article, to say the least. Interesting. I'm going to look at that one later. Um, the other thing, in addition to focusing on the the present stimuli that trigger the response, right? And when we're talking about the, re the response, we're talking about the intrusive symptoms, negative mood, dissociative symptoms, avoidance symptoms, arousal symptoms, right? In addition to that focus, it said, listen to self-referential beliefs. But I didn't get a lot of details about that. Did the articles you look at talk about those self-referential beliefs? Okay. No. Not, not so much. Mm -mm. Okay. Phase two. So phase, phase two is the preparation. It's basically just going up over what the therapy is with the patient and what to expect from it. And they come up with like um, different ways to stop the therapy if it gets too intense and just discuss what to expect and how to manage the different side effects that can happen during it. Is that the self-control techniques? Is that how you break out if something's too intense? Is that what yeah. they call those? Okay. And then also there was a, um, a metaphor of manageable distance, mindfulness. Did your articles talk about that at all? I feel like we've got like some different details in these articles. Yeah. No, I, I don't remember. Yeah. The articles I looked into weren't as focused on the actual phases, mm -hmm. okay. so I can't speak as much to that. All right, so phase one, evaluation, see, see if it's appropriate. Phase two, um, psychoeducation about what the expectations are and some of the processes for um, managing anxiety that might arise with the reliving that happens as part of the EMDR process. Right. Phase three, the assessment phase. Tell me a little bit about this. Because I think it took me a long time to get through this. Phase three? Yes. Yeah, I mean, that's the one where... Uh, you really want to, it, it, it's to have a basis what you can reference to after you're done with the treatment. And you kind of go through these different scales. The two big ones are the validity of cognition scale, which um, 
this is Dr. Shapiro's scale, right? Um, I, I, don't know I, I think she developed this, and the idea is I have this belief. So, so I think it's important to stop here for just a second. When she talks about the cognitions, I'm under the impression that she saw reliving in a, in a myriad of ways. It can be a cognition, it can be an image, it can be a physical feeling, right? And so when she's talking about these validity of cognitions, I think it's broader than that, but I'm not sure. Did you guys read about any of the way that she saw the reliving as the you know, manifestations in the various ways? Um, not really, no. I, it was more of the... Not not talk, talking about reliving, but just the mental image in your head is that that's that was the that, that would be the reliving, yeah. yeah. Okay. So yeah. so I th and I think I think she talks about that in some ways that are pretty pretty interesting to me. Again, it's it's the visual image, it's the picture that represents it. And if if I understand correctly, the first memory that you want to reprocess is that one that gives you the biggest jolt when you mm -hmm. have that image or picture in your mind, or or. Um, and then after that um, worst picture image, what happens? You try to find that cognition, I think you said. Mm -hmm. And is that when you use the validity of cognition scales to see how accurate that uh, cognition is? I think so, yeah. Okay. And for me, um, one of the articles I read was talking about the difference between um, EMDR and exposure therapy, prolonged exposure therapy. and. It was talking about how the reliving aspect of it was more of a the exposure therapy part and not so much the EMDR. Whereas in the EMDR, they they don't care if you relive the experience much more. Just like think about different parts, you jump through different memories of of the time and the images that pop in your head that are most traumatic are the ones they want to focus on, not necessarily reliving the entire situation. That would be exposure. You focus on the image, not relive the image. Okay, that's right. an important distinction that I didn't pick up. And then I want to go back and correct what I said. So the image that represents the worst traumatic memory, that's elicited. Mm -hmm. And then the cognition associated with that, those are different than the, like the, it feels like the physical stuff will come in in a minute, but we'll get to that in a moment. So we'll yeah. separate that out, mm -hmm. ignore what I said a moment ago. Now, this is the part... Um, that negative or that cognition has to be meaningful both in the present and the past. Does that sound right? Yeah, a lot of EMDR has to do with the working memory. Um, I think that's one of the big processes that it works by. Yeah, we'll talk about that and the, the potential mechanisms of action. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then this was the part that I couldn't understand. And the reason why is because it comes into play much later. And I'll, and I'll give a hint to that. And that is that you have to find a positive or preferred belief or cognition that the patient would like to believe. And I don't know if I want to speak. Yeah, no, I... This, this is so interesting to me. Yeah, this part is, like I said before, I think that the, the process of going through the treatment is variable. And so the validity of cognition skill I think is used utilized throughout all the sessions so it uh -huh. might be different as you go through more sessions if my understanding yes. is correct I, that's my understanding too is that you're using the validity of cognition scale um, to assess your cognitive response to that traumatic image that you have in your mind but this positive 
or preferred belief or cognition that you're supposed to think of. You're supposed to identify it, and then it disappears in the assessment phase. We don't say anything more about it at that yeah. point, as far as I can tell. And we were going through one of the therapy sessions that they had kind of written out, and it seemed to be, in that session specifically, um, the positive cognition was provided by the therapist. They're saying, oh, interesting. They're yeah. saying like, and he was talking, it was, it was a war veteran, and it sounded like an IUD um, happened while they were driving in a Humvee, and they're saying, and he like put in their mind like, and you did everything you could, right? And mm. so it seemed to come from more the therapist than the patient themselves. Okay, so some of the guilt associated with that. Yeah. Maybe. I would have, and, and in my mind, I would have thought that the preferred cognition would have been something along the lines of when I'm driving at home, I don't have to worry about uh, IEDs planted in the roads, right? Yeah, and I think this specific case, he was so worked up on it being his fault. So the issue was tackling the guilt associated yeah. with it. So mm-hmm. the, the cognition was, it's my fault that people got injured, including myself. And the preferred cognition would be, I did everything I could. Exactly. That makes sense. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a whole lot of sense. And, and, and I didn't understand the tie between those when I was reading through it. So that context adds a lot for me. Um, and, and in a few minutes, we're going to figure out why it's important to have the preferred cognition, right? Um, now that cognition is also um, evaluated on the VOC scale, the validity of cognition scale, right? Mm-hmm. And so, so in a way, this feels like some of the CBT-related information where we look, we check the facts essentially about the the thoughts that we have. Yeah. All right. So interestingly enough, I looked for a validity scale, right? Did somebody do research and say? the scale works, I couldn't find it anywhere, right? Yeah. This is a tool that's used within the, the construct of the therapy. It doesn't have any validity to it, that, or any, any studies that look at the validity of the scale. Um, it's probably more important as a therapeutic tool, I'm guessing, that it is as measuring something and maybe showing change. I, I don't know. Although, the idea is that at the end of therapy, I, I don't I don't know if we're focusing on changing the cognitions or the looking at the validity of the cognitions. I think people that do EMDR, they kind of have this feeling that well, we do three sessions and three hours, you're kind of done. See, uh, you don't have those traumatic responses anymore. And so mm-hmm. the validity of the cognition maybe is irrelevant at that point because you've replaced it. And maybe the validity of cognition scale is just helping you set up the viability or the reasonableness of replacing one cognition with another. I don't know. Do you guys have thoughts about that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it seems to be more subjective as far as just having a way to look at maybe the progress that you've made between the different experiences. and How you're judging stuff. Yeah. I also thought the SUDS was more about how you're making progress, how distressing it is. Mm-hmm. And that's, I also looked that up. The, the Spectre article cited a book review, not the actual <laughs> article, or not the actual book it's written nice. in. And so I tried to find the book and went back, and this is uh, from 1953. Somebody named Wolpe, W-O-L-P-E, mm-hmm. uh, wrote about the SUDS, which is Subjective Units of Distress. Disturbance. 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 Mm-hmm. Tell, uh, did you guys find anything about the SUDS? Because this is also part of the assessment 
phase, right? Because you then get these emotions that are being targeted and you assess them on this SUD scale. Yeah. 58, not 53 for Wilpy. So what, what, what about SUDs? Do you guys find anything about it? Well, like Chad was saying, um, to me, these scales weren't necessarily, I didn't focus too much on them because they just seemed to be more referential. Like you get them at the beginning and get them at the end and see where the patient views themselves on that spectrum, which I think is, without going into the validity of the scale, is helpful in itself. Okay. Yeah. And that seems pretty reasonable. Um, phase four, desensitization phase. You guys are smiling. I wish, I, I thought, okay. Do we need to go to Twitter, I'm sorry, X, X. <laughs> and have video of this, right? Because I think having you guys smiling, like it conveys so much. And, and I don't mm-hmm. think uh, audio catches all of that. So why are you smiling? Because this is where we feel like the therapy actually begins as far as our understanding of it goes. Because this is when they bring in the bilateral stimulation and the eye movements. The fun stuff. The yeah. <laughs> Tell me about it. Talk to me. Yeah, so um, during this phase, it's when they actually have the patients hold the image of the most traumatic experience in their in their um, mind, and then while they have that image in their mind, they um, have the bilateral stimulation either through the eye movements, which can be just looking at a pa- uh, the physicians or therapists, uh, finger go back and forth in a certain frequency, or it could even be through something like just tapping each shoulder. Um, both of them seem to be effective. I think there's been some studies that say the eye movements may be more effective than other sorts of bilateral bilateral stimulation, but but yeah, it's just any of them. Yeah, I think that the the tapping bilaterally was more for patients that maybe couldn't handle the the side to side eye movements, but that seemed to be the case. Yeah. Keep going. I'm all ears. All right. Well, (laughs) we were going to get into the mechanisms later, so I won't jump into that. But basically, you have this experience that you're thinking about why you're doing this eye movement, and that's the idea behind it is trying to decrease some of the emotional charge that's associated with it. And hopefully we'll be able to talk more into maybe how that actually happens. Maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But we'll get to that later. And so once that I think it's around 30 seconds where they do the eye movement then the therapist will follow up and I think they then go for how they're feeling at that moment and then maybe based off of their response they can have them focus on another image and do the same process. I think that's a different therapy session though right you're still just focused on one image in any given session or is Um, that I think it can bounce around a lot of times they kind of go they start with the image and then they do the bilateral simulation Mm -hmm. and then after that they ask like what you're feeling they get the negative negative cognition that we were talking about yeah Yeah. well the VOC what they put on that scale of zero to seven of what they thought about the experience how like like for example in the example we gave um, he felt guilty that it was his fault that the IOD happened and um, this they make him think about okay think about that guilt and then they do another session of eye movements or stimulation so hold on that's phase five though right because we're still in phase four well phase five is the installation of the positive this is still focusing on the negative one 
All right, so I want to just like role play this out a little bit. Um, you've told me to focus on the emotion, memory, um, focus on the trauma, emotion, memory, uh, physical manifestation. I'm focused on that. I'm supposed to just notice what's happening, sort of a mindfulness approach. Mm-hmm. While you have me follow either lights or your finger, right? Something that creates bilateral movement of my eyes. I'm supposed to just notice. And the therapist stays out of it. You guys are nodding yes. yes. <laughs> According <laughs> okay. to my understanding. Therapist stays completely out of it. And the reason why is because it allows the adaptive instinct to take over. Yes. Okay. I'm on the right track then. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And let's say that um, I get distracted. I'm moving away from the focus where it's supposed to be. That's okay. Yeah. That, and that's another place that I re- uh, read that is different from um, exposure therapy. In exposure therapy, they call that avoidance. But in this, it's totally okay, and it's part of the adaptive process of learning. So It seems to be encouraged. Yeah, it is. I thought it was interesting because they used the phrase, it's cleaning out the feeder channels. Mm-hmm. I think that's a neurological yeah. term. <laughs> I don't know. I don't, I don't know what that means. <laughs> but apparently yeah. it's, it, they felt like it was helpful rather than harmful. I think that's consensus there. They just, they just consider it part of the learning process, the adaptive process. Are we going to come back to that adaptive instinct and talk about that theory at some point? I think so, yeah. That's one of the, the leading models of the mechanism of action. So Good. We'll tackle that a little bit later, hopefully. Oh, I won't tackle it now. So we've, uh, up to this point, I just want to make sure I'm tracking still, and because it can get a little bit tedious to go through some lists on uh, in a podcast, evaluation preparation phase, which is psychoeducation and how to manage the anxiety. Assessment phase, which is to get the images rolling and an assessment of how severe or helpful they are and to understand the cognitions associated with those uh, images. The desensitization phase, which is where we focus on the negative image, the traumatic image, while um, being mindful and having eye movements. And now we're going to go to the installation phase. This sounds very like a computer program. (laughs) Talk to me about installation phase. So it's very similar to the desensitization. That word. (laughs) Desensitization. (laughs) It's very similar, but in this phase, instead of focusing on the negative um, cognition, it's the new positive cognition. You're trying to install that in place of the negative um, cognition they had previously. And so you think about this new um, emotion that's either you come up with yourself or, or as we've seen provided by the therapist, and then you do the same sort of thing. You have uh, stimulation from um, either eye movements or any sort of bilateral um, stimulus. Yeah, so in the example that we previously used with the soldier, instead of him thinking that this is all my fault, you try to install that idea that he did everything he could. So so the automatic thought, if I'm using the CBT language, when I have a reliving moment of that image is, 
I did everything I could with that, as opposed to I caused that. Mm-hmm. So you're changing the cognition with the memory, not necessarily eliminating the memory. No. Okay. No. All right. Um, by the way, these these phases get progressively shorter, or my attention span got progressively shorter, <laughs> and I'm not sure which. <laughs> uh, after the installation phase, we do a body scan. What is a body scan? So this, to me, it's just it's it's kind of a weird way of doing it. I, at least to me, I'm not I'm not the therapist. I'm not no expert on this, but um, it they hold in the new um, positive emotion, and they just kind of like scan their body, so to say, and feel if there's anywhere that they feel any sort of distress, like any sort sort of like an autonomic response or something like that, but. Um, they go through that, and if they find it, they just do the same thing with the eye movements or the stimulation with um, any sort of bilateral stimulus and uh, try to address that. Now, when you watched an example of this, is that kind of how it was described, that that body scan is look for the part of your body that doesn't feel well? And the reason why I ask is because when I read through this, it seemed like the idea went back to the um, negative cognition, the image, the feeling in your body that manifests the distress. It was more of a, here's my symptom of trauma that I'm scanning for, than it was kind of a, well, you know, if I'm feeling a twitch in my pinky, we reprocess that, right? <laughs> I think that's not what it was to me. Yeah. And, and, and am I on the right track then that this is looking for the manifestation of how you have previously relived the trauma? Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. All right, and, and if you find that, then you reprocess. Does that mean you go back to the installation phase, or does that mean you go back to the desensitization phase? I think it's installation, because you're trying to keep that positive thought in your mind, and okay. so it, it sounds like installation phase. To me. Okay, so you go back to the installation, and then you would body scan again. You might repeat that fa- those two steps a couple of times mm-hmm. before you go to uh, phase seven. Talk to me about phase seven. So this one is the... Just the closure, just um, you, I think it's during this one where you kind of talk about like what went on and what you thought about. It's more of the, I, I, in the in the session I watched, they said that during the session, um, it's more about the thinking process than it is about, you know, talk therapy, like how a CBT would normally be. But this part is where you actually get into the discussing it and um, they can go back to these scales and see if, there's any sort of um, improvement in their either their cognition or their um, the the SUD scale, which is the disturbance. I want to point out something that I thought was interesting and is kind of clicking for me. Originally, Dr. Shapiro called this eye movement desensitization. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So I'm getting a nod from you guys. You came across the same kinds of statements, and later the name was perhaps more accurately, uh, change to eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. Because I think it becomes, it's not as much about the desensitization as it is the reprocessing. Maybe it is about the desensitization, but it feels like it is the reprocessing. I think the goal is to be able to change the, the experience into something that elicits that traumatic experience to something that's not that emotionally charged. So that reprocessing seems to be the key. Something that's integrated, and I think we're gonna talk about the integration a little bit in a minute, okay. Uh, And then uh, 
I'm going to jump in on step eight. I feel pretty comfortable that I know this one. You reevaluate to see if that process, steps one through seven, led to identification of new targets to treat with EMDR. Yeah, and I believe the only thing I want to add here is I think it's always in the next session. It's uh, oh, so eight step eight or phase eight doesn't happen in the previous session. You have closure. And then eight comes at the beginning of the I next believe. session. Yeah. Okay. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. All right. So, um, any quick takeaways from the process of EMDR? When I first saw it, when I, I watched the session, they do it. It's it wasn't a real one. It wasn't with a real patient. It was with a, a simulated patient. But it just seems so simple. <laughs> if, I, if that's the right word, like, is this really what's helping with this such a traumatic event in someone's life is just looking back and forth at a finger going across your face. And it, it just seems so, I mean, we'll get into the mechanisms of why this might work, but at first glance, it was just so, it, it seemed too simple to be real. <laughs> yeah, and I think that some of the controversies behind this technique is, it seems like pseudoscience. Mm -hmm. Something that someone just came up with and then kind of, edited as they went along, and we kind of spoke a little bit to that with the eye movement desensitization, and then the reprocessing was added later. So I can, I guess I can relate to why people may be skeptical of this this uh, treatment. I think the big skepticism comes from the idea that one, two, three sessions might be sufficient when other therapies might take 50 to 60 hours. Mm -hmm. So 20 times more hours to, in theory, right? Right. And, and I think Spectre speaks to this a little bit, and he says, ah, come on, guys, it's not a one-session thing. Nobody really believes that. But there's these case reports out there. This yeah. Our stuff, right? And what the follow-up on that is, I don't know. So my takeaway is uh, a couple of things. First of all, the aspects of EMDR, according to Spectre, and I kind of like this, are it facilitates the resolution of memories. It desensitizes stimuli that trigger distress as a result of second-order conditioning. We, we considered diving into that a little bit, but maybe that'll be another podcast. And it incorporates adaptive attitudes, skills, and behaviors for enhanced functioning. I think that's a pretty decent way of thinking about it. I would say that based on our conversation, though, that, that kind of the facilitation of memories is that enhanced functioning, right? And the way that you're thinking about it. And it's not as much in my mind about, well, I guess it does desensitize the trigger, but it feels, feels like those three things say almost the same thing, kind of. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I do think it's interesting. Well, we, we will come back to this, but the, the United States Veterans Administration, uh, the American Psychological Association, and the NICE guidelines, which are the English guidelines for treatment, uh, these all have EMDR in as a treatment for PTSD, right? Yeah. I think that's interesting. Uh, so my takeaway of this is very interesting. It, uh, I'm also reading a book concurrently uh, that Dr. Foa has written about uh, expons uh, let's see, e ERP, expons Prolonged exposure? No. <laughs> expons no, ERP. ERP. It'll come to me eventually. <laughs> yeah. no. but, but the idea is um, that uh, tr 
these these events, you you have to have an exposure and response prevention, right? Uh, exposure and response prevention therapy. There, there it is. Um, and there seems to be some overlap in the idea of how the exposure works and, and how the response is. And it seems like maybe this is a different way of thinking about the response to your to your exposure. Yeah. Um, Got to quiet that and I'll have to call that back. It's not an emergency. Um, so let's go to why does this work? Yeah, that's the that's the big question. That um, it doesn't seem they have uh, a, a, a real set um, mechanism of action yet, but they have um, a lot of different theories that they've been working with. Yeah. So, do you just want to jump into the different theories behind the mechanism of action? Take it any direction you want. Okay. So, I think that we'll first talk about some of the proposed um, findings of as far as the neuroscience aspect and then maybe tie that into the actual theories of the models of why they think that the EMDR is working. So we read a few studies that discussed just the a myriad of other studies. So it was a systemic review, systematic review, excuse me, and they looked at all these studies and how the brain was activated or deactivated during EMDR. And so we have a few different parts of the brain that we wanted to talk about um, and then tie those in hopefully to some of the models that they proposed and see if that made sense to us. But just to make a note, let's see if I can find the quote. I'll, I'll come back to that later. But so the areas of the brain is this says that supposedly the EMDR deactivates the hindbrain, which is implicated in downregulation of the autonomic nervous system hyperarousal. I think that was going along with what you mentioned a little bit earlier that you said you want to dive deeper into was kind of that um, autonomic response, that kind of classical conditioning that people with PTSD can can. Have. I don't know that I wanted to dive into it more deeply, but I was asking questions about it. I think <laughs> I was afraid to dive into it. <laughs> yeah. uh, so, so let me hear that again. I, I don't, I'm not sure I tracked it. Trauma activates the hindbrain causing more anxiety, distress, fight or flight. And EMDR, the idea is that it settles the hindbrain yeah. somehow. Did yes. I kind of get the... That's the pi picture behind it, yeah. And okay. Then, and we'll talk, and it also deactivates the amygdala, amygdala and the insula, which are implicated in fear and the emotional regulation. Mm -hmm. yeah. Food, fight, flight, and uh, sex, I think, right? Okay, yeah. <laughs> I haven't heard those. And we want to preface, we are not neuroscientists, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think my, my younger brother, the uh, endodontist, taught me the four Fs, mm -hmm. I think. Mm -hmm. Is it the amygdala? Yeah, that sounds like you could be right, sure. Yeah. <laughs> you guys have never heard that mnemonic before, huh? I have not, no. No. I could be checking I'm thinking of like the hypothyroidism. Mm. Four Fs. Is that <laughs> hyper or hypo? It to be hyper. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, hyper. All right. So uh, keep going. Okay. So we have the deactivation, just in summary, of the hindbrain, the amygdala, and the insula, and then we also have studies that connect it with activation of the dorsal prefrontal cortex and superior frontal gyri, which 
supposedly has been implicated in aiding the process of successfully operating working memory, which we'll come back to in one of the models, and differentiating between novel sens sensory data. Along with the activation of the anterior cingulate cortex, hippocampus, and medial prefrontal cortex, and orbital frontal cortex. Wow, it's a mouthful. So those essentially are going to be implicated in cognitive, affective, and behavioral processes. And I don't think we were able to connect those as much with one of the models, but we'll, we'll try to tie in these areas of the brain where we can to the models that we're going to discuss. In I, a few I admit I glazed over a little bit. <laughs> That's yeah. okay. I mean, we can summarize. So, yeah. yeah, so so keep going, though. P push through and let me, because I think you're going to tell me a little bit about um, some, some, I think, pet imaging or some blood flow imaging that looks at increased activity in the brain with, with during use of this or immediately after. I think that's where some I of those things I think that's where this at. came from. Is it? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, so increased blood flow suggesting increased activity or increased oxygen use during in those areas of the brain following EMDR. Yes. There's some data on that. Now tie that, because I think, let, let me, there are kind of three ways broadly to think of this. And I think you're going down the neurobiological models, right? Yes. And, and we also have some psycho psychological models and some uh, psychophysiological models, I think, that may be discussed in a moment. Mm -hmm. And so keep going with this, with this neurobiological thread that you're on. Because there's, I, there was a systematic review of all proposed theories yes. and then a systematic review of neurobiological models that I think you... Well, had, right? yeah, and that's the hard part is there's so many different proposed mechanism of actions and I don't think anybody is very confident in any single one of these actions so it's almost like we're trying to piece together the picture based off of all the different proposed mechanisms and so I think you use the analogy of the elephant where one pe person touches the trunk or one mouse is yeah it the, the, mouse the blind men and the elephant parable so yeah all these blind men are given one aspect of the elephant to describe to their other friends and all of them are completely different so it's uh, I thought that was a good analogy and even the authors of these systemic reviews Mentioned. Systematic reviews. Yes, I think. systematic. <laughs> Thank you. I, for what it's worth, I didn't know the difference between a systematic review and a meta-analysis until earlier today. So, <laughs> uh, well, thanks for yeah. uh, making me feel a little better. Oh, a lot better, hopefully. So they claim that the solid evidence for all the links and interpretations of these mechanisms—they're not trying to claim anything. It's their goal to demonstrate a reasonable explanation of how EMDR could potentially work. So, so did they? Did these um, review articles that you looked at, did they make the case that there are biological changes in the brain associated with EMDR? What, yes. This myriad of changes that seems to be increasingly interesting to people. Yeah. Okay, yep. just a yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, so this is the, the circuitry model, essentially. I think this can tie into almost all of the models that there are. Okay. Uh, we, we, we'll, I think we'll go into so and talk about the different yeah, models. Yeah, right. I think more so the neurobiological, and then there's also the, what's the other one? The, the psychophysiological? Psycho yes. All right, so what is, what are, so, so you talked about circuitry and places in the brain for the neurobiological. What is the basis of the psychophysiological model? 
let me pull up these. They have several. So there's some. There's several the models. Idea? How does it differ from the neuroanatomy model? That's what I don't understand. So I think the psychophysiological model is more associated with um, the idea of slow wave sleep. Interesting. Yeah. All right. So, and we can go into that a little more. Let's yeah. do that a little bit because I thought that was one of the more interesting ideas, right? Uh, the consolidation of memory with mm -hmm. slow wave sleep. Talk, t teach me about that <laughs> as if I don't understand it at all <laughs> because I probably don't. So it's, it's more with um, slow wave sleep and um, REM sleep, rapid eye movement. I think the idea is that the frequency of the, um, the eye movements um, have the same frequency that you experience during those those times of sleep and um, it helps we know that REM sleep and slow wave sleep help with memory processing and so the theory is that through some of the same mechanisms that these uh, eye movements that we do during MDR help process and reprocess the me memories. I want to I want to just verify something when I went into medical school, I think one of the first things I was told is, make sure you get sleep because it helps with memory consolidation. Mm -hmm. When you're talking about reprocessing, are you saying that this, the movement of the eyes, like the movement back and forth, it's done at the same rate as what slow wave sleep might have some effect on your brain? Yes. yes. All right, and that does that help then consolidate the reprocessing of the, so, so you're consolidating a new memory that's built through the reprocessing. Well, not necessarily a new memory. It, it says that the, the new low, association, right? The low frequency stimulation has shown to cause depotentiation of the amygdala AMPA uh, receptors. And so it's not necessarily creating a new memory, but kind of like creating a new emotional response to the and re like 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 the namesake of the therapy reprocessing it to so I'm hearing two things I, w I just want to and I may not be tracking at all probably not <laughs> um, I understand that sleep helps consolidate memories that's what I thought I understood not necessarily create new memories right no, yes. no, no. yeah however sometimes I'm told that dreaming helps us make sense of those memories I don't know about that we're not talking about dreaming here and making sense of memories. Mm -hmm. We're talking about consolidation of a memory. And I think what I'm hearing you say is, first of all, that as you are learning a new cognition associated with an image, the movement side to side helps solidify that learning. It's like sleeping on something you've learned. Yeah. And in addition to that, I think you're saying something else, and I'm not sure. I think you're saying in addition to simply um, reinforcing what you've learned as a new cognition about a traumatic image, you are also independently desensitizing because of what's the equivalent of a slow wave sleep activity mm -hmm. by moving eyes back and forth, and that is independently settling down amygdalar parts of the brain. That's am I... Am I I'm, I'm hearing two parts to that's this. That's the theory behind it. Yeah, okay, that's, that's exactly the theory. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right, so so you guys actually just taught something that I didn't think I'd ever understand. I think. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, I think that's, yeah, <laughs> what's more of these articles, just reading from them, they taught us, so. <laughs> All right, so that's the slow wave sleep theory, and that's the stuff that's tied around the psychophysiological model. Yes. 
And then the psychological model comes from, um, I think, how we think about things. So tell me about the kinds of ideas that um, live within that. So from my understanding, there's a few different theories within the psychological model, one of them being orienting response, orienting and relaxation response. And then there's also the working memory account. And we've kind of touched on those separately. Re repeat those for me. So the first one is which, which? Orienting and relaxation response hypothesis. And what does that mean? Does that mean we? So that, <laughs> that's, it, according to them, and this is like I said before, there's so many different mechanisms and they're really hard Proposed to kind of, yeah, 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 really hard to wrap our heads around. So the idea with this one is the OR hypothesis is that you have the bilateral stimulation from the eye movements and that's occurring with this traumatic event being present in your mind and the accompanying autonomic responses from the traumatic event are s supposedly desensitized by the bilateral stimulation and it facilitates the access to the traumatic event without as much emotional charge and as without the avoidance associated with it. And I don't think that probably made any sense at all. <laughs> I, I think what I'm tracking is the idea is that we're reliving the event without the intensity and maybe be, it, it feels like a, an exposure and response minimization kind of approach. Yeah, and we're thinking that could technically be tied to maybe that hindbrain and or amygdala um, Still feels very insula. physiological, doesn't it? Yeah. Yes, it does. Okay. I, I was kind of thinking about it, and it kind of, I, I thought to myself, it sounds like different way of thinking about the biological mechanisms. Yeah, maybe. and maybe that's just how I like to think about it because I can connect it to the biological aspect, mm -hmm. the psych or the social, the psych, the psychos psychosocial. psychosocial. Yes, the psychosocial or the psychological model. Just without that biological connection, is harder for me to understand. I think that's how it all plays back into the, really the neurophysiology is through like the, the amygdala deactivation. And then the second, uh, the second one you mentioned was what? The working memory account. And I'm not sure I understood that the first time you said it. Um, so this one is, um, it specifically talks about the eye movements and they say the eye movements disrupt working memory um, by reducing vividness and emotion, emotion response to trauma. And the impact of reducing working memory means what? How does that affect us cognitively? It's just what your conscious is thinking about in the moment when you relive those images or see those images again in your mind. And it's kind of reprogramming that so it's less vivid and so the, the emotions aren't as strong. And it seems very similar to the other models, yeah. explanation-wise. Okay. <laughs> In other words, what you're saying is we probably don't have the expertise to uh, even comment on what we're reading. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Essentially, <laughs> yeah. Uh, let's talk about, I'm, I'm going to skip ahead a little bit. Because um, I, th I think the models, the take-home point is, there's a lot of consideration about the models. Perhaps they work hand in hand. Perhaps there's a biological understanding of psychological models uh, that's starting to grow together. There does seem to be some sort of biological change that's associated with the therapy. It looks like maybe more data will um, either improve that understanding or change our minds of that understanding, but that's kind of where we're at right now, early in the process. 
Yeah, I would agree. It seems to be a tenuous connection at the moment, and yeah. I would like to see more data for sure. See where it goes. <laughs> Fair enough. All right, so um, I read something interesting. So first of all, I mentioned a moment ago that I uh, um, don't think I was tracking well the difference between a meta-analysis and a system systemic, systematic system. review. <laughs> systematic review. I'm going to be tripping on that the rest of my life now. Systematic <laughs> review. Um, and, and I am absolutely certain I still don't understand the difference. Uh, I came across a fascinating article by uh, Dr. Oppheim who said the following, or, or my summary of the article was as follows. It's about uh, PTSD treatment with EMDR. They made the case, and this isn't just about EMDR now, in 2007 there were 6.8 systematic review and meta-analysis articles published every day. In 2014 that jumped to 22 systematic review and meta-analysis articles published every day and that they were now uh, outnumbering randomized control trials. I thought that was interesting. Mm -hmm. They said, hey, I get it. It's driven by a public need to know, um, a desire to have a better sense of the pooled data, so to speak. It, you don't have to get an IRB, so it's a little bit easier for the to to meet your publishing requirement if you're at an institution that requires publishing papers, and financial issues are a lot less. It's a lot easier to do a meta-analysis than it is to actually have uh, patient subjects and, and do the research on the patients. So they said we get it, and so what we want to do is we want to look at all the articles that are out there um, during a certain period when guidelines were established by the Cochrane group, the Cochrane database group, to kind of give us uh, standards for how we would publish both systematic reviews and meta-analytic meta reviews. And they said, so we found 5,576 studies that were randomized control trials, or controlled trials at least, and when we took out the duplicates of 2,723 articles that were <laughs> reporting on the same data, um, that's almost half of the papers rights were down around uh, 2,700, 2,800. Um, and they said there were 2022 uh, systematic reviews that had been published, and they looked at those and said, based on, based on what we know, how well did these articles do? And they said essentially they were maybe, most of them only looked at one database to try and find articles, so they might only look at PubMed, but not Embase, mm -hmm. not uh, PsychNet, mm -hmm. and so forth, right? There's five or six article databases that you would look at to have a comprehensive search in theory. And uh, so most of those reviews only looked at one database, and uh, only three of the 20, um, actually used like three or more, I think. So so generally speaking, these meta-analysis that we're looking at at least prior to 2020 seem to be skipping some of the articles. Now, if we fast forward, you had uh, three articles in the meta-analysis that you looked at. Yeah. Um, I think one of them was, I, I, I'm not sure if you had the Watts article. There, there are a lot of meta-analysis articles or 
systemic review articles that said essentially, how should we treat PTSD? Let's look at everything and just say, what are the outcomes for all psychological interventions? And you kind of scratch your head and go, I, I, I mean, there's enough articles on just one topic. Why don't you just go for one topic, right? Mm -hmm. it, it feels like, uh, like the Watts article from 2013 said, yeah, it looks like some meds work. It looks like the cognitive behavioral therapies work, which we think are the exposure therapies. And EMDR works, it looks like. And uh, maybe even acupuncture works based on one article. And I'm like, this doesn't feel like a <laughs> robust systematic review. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But it doesn't seem as robust as something that looks directly at uh, the EMDR data. Especially since there were a number of, of articles at that point, maybe 2,000 published articles yeah. at that point. Mm -hmm. um, Generally speaking, uh, Watts said that women respond better than men to the psychological therapies. Did you come across anything that spoke about EMDR that way? No, not, not in the articles mm -hmm. that I okay. was able to look The other thing it said is that um, all comers respond, uh, all comers other than vets respond better than vets do to the psychological therapies. Mm -hmm. I thought that was interesting. I didn't know if you guys had come across anything yeah, else. No, I think there are a lot of reasons to think why that might be the case, but probably not worth mentioning here. Um, now, in that context, uh, you had a Chen article from 2014 and a purse from 2020. Yeah. Let's let's talk about Chen first. Tell me what you took from the Chen article. Um, the Chen article seemed to be much more positive than the other article. <laughs> we'll just start with that. And this is kind of what I found with most of the articles that we were researching is they seem to, to support EMDR as a highly or extremely efficacious treatment. Mm -hmm. um, and most of their data said the same thing, it seems like. Mm -hmm. It didn't seem very, I don't know, targeted as far as EMDR versus other treatment types like the CBT. So it didn't ever convince me that it's better than any other type of potential treatment for PTSD, but it kind of threw all their way, it does work. And so they, according to all the articles that they were able to find in their systematic review. Uh, they had 26 articles, right? Mm -hmm. Which I think is less than the... Uh, 5,576 papers that were published, I think that were randomized control trials. Um, did they talk about how they excluded trials or how they included trials? They, let's see, in the methods they did, but I couldn't tell you off the top of my head. I'd have to dig into that I think more. I looked at it and I think they did a decent job. Now, the other thing that I thought was interesting, um, the other thing that I thought was interesting was uh, Chen said that there's the, the articles demonstrate that EMDR leads to, leads to re, reduced depression, anxiety, and distress. But it's not clear to me that it led to changes in reliving. Interesting. And that's specifically with patients with PTSD, With PTSD, right? yeah. And, and I, I think there's that makes some sort of sense based on the idea that I'm not sure that we are necessarily eliminating the um, exposure to reminders of the past. I think it's more about changing 
the way you respond to those reminders of the past. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's the reprocessing part. Even though there's some evidence of um, deconditioning, I think is or maybe the right term. Let's go to C-U-I-J-P-E-R-S. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I won't even try to say that last name. All right, so this one is actually the first article that I read, which kind of tainted my whole experience going through this research. But they were a little more uh, negative in their approach to the research that has been done in association with EMDR. Um, specifically, there it seemed like their biggest gripe was that most of these studies had, or there was a very small amount of these studies that had a low risk of bias, meaning that many of these articles seem to have quite a bit of bias behind them. By the way, 76 articles, right? So this is a dramatic bump up from the 26 we've seen in other um, either systematic reviews or meta-analytic reviews. Yes. Yeah, and I think, let's see, most of the studies were aimed at PTSD, 48 were aimed at PTSD, 17 were targeted towards anxiety, and three for depression in association with the EMDR. So that was interesting. They weren't all focused specifically on the PTSD, um, which is what seems to be the main indication for this treatment. But as I previously said, so they had that gripe about the low risk of bias and the high risk of bias, the high risk of bias mm-hmm. right? And the there was also low follow-up data. So a lot of these studies only went out maybe three months or six months at the longest. And so they had a hard time being able to reconcile that with saying that this is the best treatment out there. I think the other thing they mentioned was publication bias. I think there are more and more um, of the meta-analysis articles and the systematic review articles um, that are speaking to the idea of are there negative trials that are unpublished and mm-hmm. and they came back with the based on the st- statistics they have that there are probably unpublished negative articles that are hanging out out there yeah and I guess that's just the nature of the field and research in general. But yeah, I, I, and, and we don't always see that, right? We don't always see that uh, publication bias pop up in some of the articles that we see. So I thought that the conclusion they had was intriguing, which is um, there's probably some immediate benefit to EMDR. Mm-hmm. Probably. Yeah. That's actually a, considering like a lot of these meta-analysis <laughs> we look at, you're kind of like, yeah, it's sort of like just angry at everything and yet I see how they get there yeah and some of the the way they go about collating the data and judging the validity of the data is a is a concern right so a high risk of bias I think probably comes out of the uh, idea that these articles are largely written by people who have some sort of um, contractual obligation to the proprietary nature of the information, right? Yeah. Which, which is, I think, one of the criticisms. Um, let me, uh, anything we want to add up to this point? Because if not, I'm going to throw out some questions for you. I don't think so. Oh, yeah, nothing for me. Is, all right, so here are the questions. Um, at times, this has been um, promoted as a one-session cure. Comments? Well, from what I could read, 
it seems like the average amount of sessions were actually around eight, eight to 12, I think. Yeah, I don't think there's anywhere that said it was one. Um, I think it's less than other cognitive therapies. Yes. And I think that's one of the benefits from it is that they, a lot of the studies, um, even the one that was pretty negative, said that they have pretty um, similar outcomes as other therapies. However, you're talking about the Quijers article, the meta yeah. or the yeah. systematic review. I think it's, it says both actually. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It might have been both. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, it makes me now wonder if I'm looking at an article as a reviewer at a meta analysis now, and, and that's a great question. And what what some of the details are that differentiate the two. Yeah. So so I think the people that are promoting this. Even though there are these one-off articles that are published about out there about one you know, one session cure, I don't think that's really the heart of what the people who develop this therapy and, yeah. and mm -mm. promulgate this therapy are going for. Next question: Is eye movement necessary? A lot. Of, that's what like one of the questions we had is there was some studies that that had that did it with no eye movement and saw kind of similar results, <laughs> but um, it's. The original development of this therapy was based around the idea of the eye movement and how, why that was working with different parts of the brain that we mentioned to to reprocess and to, to program these good thoughts into your uh, about these traumatic events. The walk in the park is important. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, right. Isn't it interesting that the conclusion wasn't, hey, I'm walking around in nature, therefore walking in nature is the solution. It right. was, I'm randomly moving my eyes around and that's the important part. Interesting stuff. Yeah. And Go ahead. With that, I think it's interesting because the other therapies, if, if it was, if the eye movements weren't necessary, then I don't understand why this type of therapy is takes so much shorter of a time to see progress in the patient than the normal exposure therapy would because it's like much, much shorter. But and they do see good results. So I'm thinking maybe it really does have something to do with the eye movements that makes it so that it processes the information, if not better, faster. You would think so. Yeah, you'd we, think, we, we you'd want think. it to be yeah. that way, right? Yeah. You'd Maybe we. What if we got to the right place by the wrong pathway? Right. That, yeah. <laughs> and that's what we don't know. And um, next question. Um, kind of looking for a visceral response to this. So, the adaptive information processing model we didn't talk about, but I found this intriguing. And the idea is that you can use trauma instructively, right? This, this um, has this really aversive feeling in myself, right? Uh, the idea that you can take a traumatic ex event and use it instructively or integrate it somehow into your life in a more meaningful way um, than it had been in the past. Thoughts. Do, is it is trauma good? <laughs> well, I think because it was Shapiro that came up with the AIP model, um, and I think that the problem with the PTSD wasn't that um, it was being processed normally. It was it was being it was being processed just in a bad way. Like it was going to different parts of the brain where it shouldn't be in and should be kept in. And the whole point of EMDR was to kind of get the other, like, more cognitive parts of your your mind involved in these traumatic events instead of just keeping it in that place where it's just stored as a fear response. 
opening it up to have the other parts of the brain be able to counter the fear response right. in a sense, yeah, right? right? Open up those channels that had been uh, clogged. The feeder channels. Mm-hmm. Feeder channels that were clogged. Uh, I don't think it's saying trauma is good either, no. right? I think what it's saying, I think trauma is um, common, variable, and going to be difficult to eliminate. And I think the case that's being made is not that trauma is good, but that if it's happening, we figure out the best way to take that event and inform our lives in the future, right? I think that's the way I understand that, not that trauma is good, but that it does need to be used instructively as possible. Yeah, and maybe tying back to that original example of the soldier who was able to change his perspective from being this is my fault to I did everything I could and I think the outcome then would be that that experience was something that he could use to honor the people that had passed if that makes sense yeah so using that trauma to find a benefit from it strictly there's a There is. Uh, there used to be test questions on the shelf exam, or at least the exams I took, about um, sublimation, mm-hmm. taking distress and using that to um, find a better way of living or to channel that anxiety into a mm-hmm. yeah. helpful process. I think that's kind of what you're alluding to. Are there still test questions that speak oh, yeah. to sublimation? Yeah. So the defense mechanisms you still need to know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Interesting. It's like a defense mechanism. Yeah, it seems so. (laughs) Does EMDR, next question, does EMDR decondition? In sort of like in the classical conditioning sense, or what do you mean by decondition? I'll leave the question as it is. (laughs) Okay. It's a discussion, right? Well, I think what we were going, that's one of the proposed theories, is that it does do that. It does, it helps both with classical conditioning, like lowering that autonomic response to traumatic yeah. events, and maybe in a different way of it conditions, it reconditions your mind to think about the events different, differently than... Yeah, or not have the same response as yeah. it previously did. So as opposed to... It, it, it's, it's interesting because I, I sometimes, I know, I know we've talked about these things before, we talked about our patients who, who struggle with schizophrenia, and how they can live focused on the voices and what they're doing with the voices. Um, Or they can live the adaptive self. Um, We're gonna pause right here for one sec. We're back, let's see how this goes. Um, Where were we? Questions. Your questions, yeah. (laughs) Questions. I think we just talked about deconditioning. is this similar to exposure and response prevention? It's similar. Um, I think we we're just talking about um, exposure and response prevention would, would include the prolonged exposure and CBT. Are you? I think it would have CBT principles in it. Okay. Yeah. Right. Uh, how how it would fit with uh, prolonged exposure? I'm not as certain. Okay. Yeah. And I guess my answer is I'm not sure because yeah. I don't know enough about the exposure. There is a comment in one of the articles I read that said there's an exposure to the trauma. Mm-hmm. Okay. There is a fear response. 
and there is habituation and reattribution of the cognitions associated with the trauma. Does that sound about right? I, I mean, is that eight steps kind of pushed into three really quickly? It sounds like it's pretty I think, similar. I think I read in the article, one of the articles too, is that habituation actually isn't a part of EMDR. Okay. So Reattribution of the cognition might be? That definitely is, but habituation, yeah. no. Okay. The gold standard, according to Spectre, back in 2007, right, one of the articles that seemed to be this fulcrum point for me, um, was prolonged exposure. Did you see any head-to-head -head studies between prolonged exposure and EMDR? I know they're out there. You're nodding yes. I did, but as I previously mentioned, it was kind of a, I maybe not found the best article to reference because it's specific to patients with psychosis. Um, and it didn't really have a big difference between either of them. It, and it was funny because they have the title of it's, you know, it's the PE versus the EMDR, but then one of their first statements says, this article isn't to distinguish which one's better. It's just to see if they're effective. I'm like, well, that's a little misleading. But there's not a control arm then. <clears throat> There was a control arm. Oh, interesting. But they just didn't want to claim one was better than the other. Did they indicate that either were better than either the waiting list group or the treatment as usual group? Yeah, so they were both better than the, the uh, wait list group, I think, was the way that they termed it. Mm -hmm. um, even, even though the wait list group actually had some improvement, which was interesting. But yeah. the PE and the EMDR had um, both had improvement. And I'm trying to, th there was, oh. You did an NNT immediately on that, right? You subtracted out the <laughs> percent improvement. In my head, I was like, <laughs> Dr. Round, he's going to ask me about <laughs> I'm like, I don't got time to calculate it. The interesting thing is that they found that the participants in the PE condition were more likely to achieve full remission as opposed to the EMDR. So it did have some aspect saying that PE was slightly better in that aspect, but and was it powered enough to find that difference? I'm not sure. I did not to claim it was significant. Um, I think the last article... Oh, go ahead, Derek. Yeah, I, I, I found an article, kind of, you said that yours was related to psychosis. Mine was just normal, just between the two. And it had similar results where it was... Um, they're, they're, they have similar outcomes. But I think the main difference between the two is that EMDR is faster. It, it comes out... Um, it was reported they required fewer treatment sessions and had res resulted in fewer drop dropouts because of the fewer treatment sessions. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, compared to the like 30 to 60 hours for exposure therapies, it was like just a few hours for MTR. 12 hours maybe. And I, I think that's why the two different different um, therapies still exist because one's if, if this one wasn't so short, like no one would care about it because they just go to the normal. They go to the gold standard. Yeah, uh, I think you also made a comment earlier. One of the two of you, while we were getting ready to come back, and the idea was, if it were so great, we wouldn't be looking for another therapy. And I think there's still shortcomings of all of our therapies, as there are shortcomings of all of our medications. Um, I do, I do think that the last article I looked at, and I didn't look at it closely, said essentially they're very equivalent. And maybe the only difference is the amount of time. But the other comment that I found was interesting. I've always been under the impression that EMDR is a more tolerable therapy. 
because of the way that it addresses the reliving aspect of it. I think as we went through the description of the phases, I'm I'm less um, I, I'm less biased. Maybe is the, is the way of thinking about it. I'm less biased that prolonged exposure does less or does more traumatic reliving. I think they both do to to get to their end point. And I think the article I looked at made the case that there's really not a lot of difference in the dropout rate. You made the case that maybe any differences that exist are related to the amount of time it takes to complete the therapy. I I find that interesting. Uh, Other comments or questions that either of you want to throw out? Not really. This was just, uh, it's just interesting to see how something that at first me, like Chad said, seemed like pseudoscience can really turned out to be like a gold standard for the treatment of uh, PTSD. Or at least first-line treatment. First line. Right. Yeah, 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 I think first-line treatment is right. kind of, I th- and that's uh, the shelf questions that you have mm-hmm. that come up, either CBT or EMDR, EMDR. Mm-hmm. at least in your prep questions. Yeah. All right, uh, if no other questions, um, did you like the kind of free flow question answer kind of thing? Yeah. One yeah. of the things I like about it is I, f- I feel like you guys have a better chance to say, hey, here's what I learned. Here's how it fits. And, and I like the flow of it. I, I think students sometimes get caught up in, um, are they answering the question the right way? Is it scripted the right way? And, and obviously there is preparation that goes into this and some level of scripting, but I really like the way the free flow goes and when I can get students to just talk about what they learned and how they kind of think about the data. I've always enjoyed that. So I may come back to keep doing those kind of open-ended questions and maybe even shorten the the goals of the actual, here's the content we want to focus on and then here's the questions we have. We'll see how that goes. Yeah. Uh, take home, who wants to go first? I can go it's just along the line of what I said. Um, obviously there's so many different psychotherapies you can use for treatment of PTSD and this just seems like one that can work for you. So it, it, it's, I feel like it's just so on an individual basis, you're gonna find what works for you. And so the whether it's a the oppo- opposition to the therapy or those who propose that um, proponents, want it. yeah, proponents, um, you're just going to find whatever works for the patient, and it's bringing it to that individual level. Just this is just one of your um, tools you can put in your repertoire that can help you with uh, your day to day trying to help these people. Do you imagine yourself using this? Should you be a psychiatrist? Maybe not myself, but I could see myself referring, referring it. Yeah, I think it costs a couple thousand dollars to be able mm-hmm. to do the training. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, it sounds like you fall on the side of it looks like the data supports that it's beneficial overall, at mm-hmm. least immediately. Um, some of the information maybe still suggests that the gold standard is prolonged exposure. Mm-hmm. But it sounds like you're ready to say, hey, if prolonged exposure doesn't work for you, go to EMDR, or are you more along the lines of, here's the two options, what do you want? Either or. I mean, I, I think I prefer the, the second, the former, where you uh, give them the two options up front and have them choose. Would you say that one is seems to be better than the other? Between EMDR and CBT? Uh-huh. From what I've seen from the data, it doesn't look like it. The only thing that I could see is the time difference. Okay. And you might point that out then. Right. Okay. I, I'm curious. Do you 
feel the same way? Because you you were affected more by the Quijars Quijars yeah. article. I yeah, I don't think I would necessarily lean towards EMDR more than CBT. Um, mm-hmm. It seems like. And I didn't really do enough research into CBT to be able to throw my support behind it either. <laughs> but um, just from the recency, I guess, of the creation of this therapy and from the research that I was able to do, I'm, I'd am i be more inclined to recommend the CBT unless they'd already tried it. I mean, it's variable per the patient, of course, but I think I would probably lean towards CBT first generally speaking. Interesting. It, it makes me kind of want to do the dive on on the exposure therapies, right, and see mm-hmm. how they compare. Um, I think it's fascinating that the two of you have slightly different approaches based on really the same information. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure that I know the answer to the question I asked, by the way. Yeah, and I think part of it may be just when I'm looking through all this research, and I have not had any exposure really to any of these psychotherapies beforehand before this rotation and so it's fascinating going through and learning more about them and looking through the research and I think just the nature of psychotherapies it's hard to come up with very solid methodology and reproducible data so I think that aspect of it makes it harder for me to be able to really to judge it yeah so, so I, I think after I read enough articles and I don't know what enough is but I I should say it differently. I came to the point where I felt comfortable that um, there are a couple of ways to try and have placebo controls because I think that's really the heart of what you're talking mm-hmm. about. Mm-hmm. And I think the wait list is an interesting placebo control, right? And, and you talked about that placebo response. Some people get well just hanging yeah. out in limbo, right? Um, and the, the second part of that is treatment as you, as usual. This is what we normally do. We feel it's unethical to at least not give some treatment. And so our comparison is between these two active comparators. Mm-hmm. And uh, both of those have different uh, advantages, I think. So I feel like understanding the process for me gave me the comfort to say, here's how I judge the information. It didn't make me say it's impossible to have a good study. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah. Uh, so hopefully it does. Yeah. Um, what is your so I th- did did you finish up your take home Derek? Yeah. Mm-hmm. What about you Chad? Is there another take home or is that part of your t- tell me what your take home is? I think that I've kind of discussed a little bit about my take home. I think that depending on the patient if they're in a circumstance that EMDR would be preferable to them, I think it would be important to inform your patient about the potential options of the treatments. So I, I could see myself recommending it to some patients, and I would love to learn more about the future of EMDR and where <laughs> it goes from here. But as of right now, it's first-line treatment along with CBT and pharmacotherapy, so it's, it's definitely something that I would be willing to recommend. I'm always intrigued by um, the idea of this is first-line treatment and I, I think over the last couple of years, I've become somewhat more leery about what it means to have first-line treatment and should we all immediately buy in? Do we need to have more people that are actively questioning that? Um, but I think it's also very, very difficult to be able to read the data on every single therapy and treatment choice given out. And uh, yeah. I, I think probably, I've, I, I think I'm somewhere in 
the ballpark of where you two are, which is, I think even the most, um, the article that challenges the therapy most that we read concluded that there's at least short-term benefit, mm-hmm. right? And couldn't comment on longer-term benefit. So I think I'm really hopeful to find out are there going to be longer-term studies that come out and show us something. Um, are we going to have studies that are powered better and have um, less risk of bias that might be challenging because of the proprietary nature of the therapy, but I think those are things that I'm intrigued to see. And at least there's enough data that I I think I would feel comfortable offering the choice and saying one has a longer track record. Generally speaking, it seems that um, the studies might still lean towards prolonged exposure and one takes a lot more time than the other, right? And, and I think maybe that's where I would go in the, as I provided informed choices, hopefully, to my patients. My take-home, though, is very different, and that is that I, I, I kind of had this aha moment where I've just called it everything that's a systematic review and that analysis. <laughs> and I'm wondering how many people listening to podcasts in the past have said to themselves, oh my goodness, this guy knows nothing. <laughs> and, and while that's probably true... <laughs> well, they'll think the medical students don't know anything, especially... <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so, so I, I, I uh, have something that will be catching my attention a little bit more in terms of how I think about the meta-analysis that I'm reading and and the systematic reviews that I'm reading and how I take those into account and uh, how, how I judge. Like, because I, I think generally I urge my students to go to the Cochrane database for the reviews. I don't think we found a Cochrane review on EMDR alone. I think mm-hmm. we found Cochrane reviews on sort of all therapies for PTSD, all psychotherapies for PTSD, but we didn't find a Cochrane review on EMDR alone. And we saw some variability between the reviews. Uh, for EMDR otherwise, and so I think that helps inform my understanding of why do I see differences, H- how do I evaluate the, EM- the uh, meta-analytic reviews that are done through a Cochrane approach maybe versus other approaches and how, how that may make me judge the evidence that I'm looking at. So that, that opened up something new for me to think about. That's my take home. All right, we've been going for about an hour and a half, a quick 45-minute podcast, we said, right? Uh, <laughs> Unless there's anything else, on that note, team out. out.